It's showtime. Don't say it. Please, don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime! It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome to the Showtime Movie Podcast. As always, I am your host, Show. Thank you so much for listening and commenting and reviewing and subscribing and all that good stuff here in the world of podcasts. Um, I know it's been a while. It's funny. I I just got to stop saying that. I got to stop promising dates because it has just been insanely busy at work. But I finally wanted to get to our movies we've seen at TIFF. Now, I'm not going to spend on this episode too, too long talking about the movies I saw at TIFF just because it's, it was a while ago now, right? About a, About two months ago, essentially now with the movies at TIFF. But I did want to talk about a couple of them. We'll give like we'll give like small reviews of the movies we saw, like some of the movies. Um, I saw seven films at TIFF this year, which is way down from what I usually see. But at the same time, it was very nice to get back and, and be involved in the process again. So I do want to get to some of the major ones. We'll do four major reviews and we'll do three kind of like, I don't know, bite-sized reviews, let's call them, right? So here are the movies I saw at TIFF this year. I saw Belfast. Scarborough, Last Night in Soho, The Humans, France, The Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne, and The Guilty. Now, let's see. I saw one, two, three of these movies in theaters. I saw Belfast, Last Night in Soho, and France all in theaters. And then the other four, I guess, I saw digitally. Uh, And, of course, TIFF this year was still done largely digitally. I think the way it worked, if I recall correctly, was you got 10 tickets and then via a press pass, I should say, and you had to renew all 10 tickets via their website. You couldn't just use, like, nine. If you want to go see nine movies in person, you couldn't. You had to use all 10, which made me kind of feel bad because in order to get all the tickets, I essentially had to book screenings for times I knew I could not make because, of course, I was juggling this with, like, my actual job, right, at the radio station, so it, it was unfortunate because it meant I, I couldn't end up going to see, um, you know, the like the some other movies that I really wanted to go see, like with Benedict Cumberbatch and, you know, Night Raiders, for example. A lot of these movies they had, they did have digital screenings, but the other half of the digital side of things when it came to TIFF last year or this past year, I should say, was they go away after like 48 hours. And TIFF was like right in the middle. If you guys remember uh, from the podcast we did the last couple episodes, um, it was right in the middle of the Blue Jays stretch run, and I was very much involved in that. So, you know, I, I couldn't exactly go, like, well, hey, guys, you know how the Blue Jays are a game back of the Boston Red Sox or the New York Yankees for making the playoffs? Well, can't make it, guys. Sorry. Got to go do my movie podcast. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think either my wife would have uh, taken too well to me blowing off work while she's like doing work herself, first of all. And then secondly, I don't think my bosses would have minded that and I would have enjoyed that because I probably would have been fired. So that is kind of a big part of why I only ended up seeing three. It was actually, it wasn't actually too bad. Ultimately speaking, um, I didn't enjoy being in theaters again. It was nice being with like, I don't know, even if it's with like the snobby press, it was kind of fun. So um, I, the, the Bel- again, Belfast last night in Soho in France. It's funny. The last night in Soho specifically was, um, was screened at Roy Thompson Hall. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Roy Thompson Hall is like a giant concert venue for um, like or like an or- orchestral concert venue, right? Like for um, 
like the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, you know, with like the sound walls and the giant organ in the back. Where it's where like they they do again. If you're unfamiliar, it's like where they will have like you know like in, at Christmas time they'll play like Home Alone on a giant screen, and then the dialogue will play over the speakers, and then the sounds like the music will be played uh, via the orchestra, like a live orchestra. They do that a lot. I think I went to go see. Lord of the Rings, I think, once. And I, went to, I also went to go see a Star Wars movie there. Unfortunately, in the pandemic, and they kind of canceled everything. But um, it was fun. It's been, it's been a while since I had been back inside Roy Thomas and all. So that was kind of cool. Uh, but ultimately speaking, it's, it generally, it's, it was nice just seeing movies in person again. Um, I have seen a bunch of movies since then, like the, uh, the commercially available movies to everyone, right? Like domestic films and the big releases. We talked about Shang-Chi. Um, and in Toronto specifically, since I saw Shang-Chi, the, uh, the, the, the restrictions on theaters have lifted. So for the fully vaccinated, you can now go into movie theaters and sit like completely normal. Right. And I did that pretty recently, but we'll talk about that in another episode. Today, I do want to focus on the TIFF movies. So why don't we get started again? Seven movies. Um, we'll get started with the the three or pardon me, the four I want to talk about mostly. OK, we'll talk about Belfast, Scarborough, Last Night in Soho and The Humans. And then we'll do, again, bite sized reviews for France, The Guilty and uh, The Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne. So let's get right into the reviews. It's really exciting and probably one of, if not the best movie I saw at TIFF 2021, Kenneth Branagh's, I don't want to say magnum opus by any means, but definitely one of his most personal films in a very long Hollywood career, his movie Belfast. I got to say, this was the movie I was most excited to see at TIFF because there just weren't very many screenings of this movie. Like I tried to get tickets for the the non-press screening and it sold out immediately like it sold i think it was actually sold out before they even went on sale to the general public so i think you would have had to have bought tickets to go see this movie like i don't even know like you had to be one of the main package members to go see this movie at tiff but i'm I'm very pleased to report that belfast is very good katrina balth uh, and Jamie Dornan are the two main cast members. Kieran Hines and Judy Dench are the other two kind of playing Jamie Dornan's character's father. And I, I want to say, actually, in this movie, you never actually learn any of their real names. I think you just I think it's just Ma, Pa, Da, I think, for Kieran Hines and Gra- I think Grandma or Mama, I think. Anyway, either way. Or just grandmother, perhaps? She may not even been referred to at all when it comes to Judy Dench's character. But my point is, the reason for the the informal names for these characters is because the movie is largely told from the perspective of a young boy. And I mentioned this is Kenneth Branagh, who directed and wrote this movie. It's his most personal film. It's because uh, Kenneth Branagh, in case you're unaware from just his name, but already haven't seen a, even hiding under a rock for the last 20 something years. But uh, he has probably more than actually more than 20 something years. Um, he is Irish and he's from Belfast. Right. And the movie is largely set in, I think, the 60s. I'm not a very good judge of history, but uh, it is, I believe, set in the 50s or 60s and uh, takes place during the Protestant Catholic riots uh, that take place in Belfast at the time. And uh, the young boy is, I think, supposed to be Kenneth Branagh as a young kid because it's it's about his love for the movies and it's about uh, how he how he leaves and goes from Belfast to like I guess I guess to like the, the larger cities and le- leaving Ireland and and trying to find a, a life without violence and so on and again not a lot of it happens to the kid but it's just that 
around him. It's a lot of uncertainty. And again, I mean, I am I am not super well versed in the, the actual history of the Protestant Catholic rites in Ireland in the 1950s and 60s. Don't get me wrong. I am, I am very much not right. I studied English literature. If that if that gives you a a, a taste for what I, what I may or may not be more well versed in. Funnily enough, I mean, Kenneth Branagh has done a ton of Shakespeare, so I feel like I I do ha- I have seen a lot of his performances over the many many years he's been an actor. But I digress. Uh, Belfast, I gotta say, very personal. It's not super long, which is nice. It has some interesting direction. But I think that where where this this movie mostly shines is in the performances that Brana gets out of his main characters, right? Again, I mentioned the four actors: Judy Dench and Kieran Hines as the grandparents, and then uh, Jamie Dornan and Katrina Balf as the parents. I I want to say Balf again; I could be mispronouncing her name. I, I deeply apologize if I am. I haven't seen her in too many movies. I think she's the star of that. I, I want to say Outlander. It's either Outlander or Highlander, that TV show uh, about the modern day woman who like time travels back to like medieval times thereabouts and like falls in love. And you know, she's like stays back there. I, I believe, which I believe itself is based on a very popular book series, but uh, either way she is, I like if, if I had to pick just one person who is the movie's like emotional core, it is by far Balf, right? Because the whole thing is that Jamie Dornan, the father, he leaves Belfast to go find work for workers elsewhere while the grandparents and the mom look after this young boy who's like getting into trouble with his friends and still trying to learn about the world around him and navigate his own feelings for a girl he likes and so on, right? So that that stuff is all really interesting. And the young boy is a very good actor as well, but the the core of this film resides with Balf and... Uh, and Dornan. Dornan is, is good too, don't get me wrong, by any means, but he is like a man conflicted, and I like his performance, but I loved Katrina Balfe's performance, right? And Judy Dench and Karen Hines, they're good in like, I don't know, basically everything they've ever been in, but as the weary parents of the father, so the kids' weary grandparents, I mean, they love him, they love each other, they love their son and their their daughter-in-law, but it's just like they they just perform the old crotchety grandparents who are are delightfully weird uh to such perfection they're such a fun to watch but i think the best performance in this film by far belongs to katrina balf um i do want to say real quick as well because we know the young boy is a young kenneth brana um there's a a a bunch of fun parts where he loves the movies right they go to the movies often and i mean Shocker, right? Kenneth Branagh is a famous director and actor, so obviously he loved the movies as a little kid. But it's funny because the entire movie is in black and white, and the only times you see color in this movie are at the very beginning when you see modern Belfast, and then it shifts to black and white when you see the time change back to the 60s. And the only other time you see color in this movie is when this kid goes to the movies and you see the like like the Magnificent Seven, for example, on this on the t on the movie screen. Um, which I guess means this movie takes place in the 60s, right? I mean, this and seven came out in the 60s, I want to say. But anyways, uh, I think that's the only time you see the color on the screen, which is fascinating because I guess it just goes to show how much of an impact the movies had on this young boy, right? Because, I mean, the only, think about it. Like, literally, the only time this kid sees in Technicolor is when he goes to the movies. So I think it's it's a, a very easy way of showing you that this is what he's inspired by, and this is what really means something to him. 
Um, and I think there's a point where Judy Dench's character says something like, you really love your pictures, don't you? And he's like, yeah, I do, Grandma, <laughs> right? And uh, yeah, again, I think it does kind of work on a bunch of different levels because you, the audience viewer, know it's written and directed by Kenneth Branagh. He's a famous actor. He's a famous director. And you know that these people probably like movies. I mean, you would hope so, right? But uh, anyways, it's just, it was a fantastic film. Probably the one time, maybe not the one time, but one of the few times that I've been to a movie where the audience, and I'm talking about the press, right? Like the cranky, snobby press applauded at the end. I guess industry members are in there too, so they're maybe more likely to applaud, but a lot of people clapped. And uh, I did not because it's almost like cheering in the press box. I feel like you're not supposed to do that. But either way, um, it was a very good film. It, it ended up winning the uh, People's Choice Award at, uh, at TIFF this year, which I think in years past has meant it is it is probably destined for some kind of awards glory right i mean it's at this very early juncture it's probably the uh the front runner for best picture but i mean it's also what november a lot can change between now and what april or so right so um i'm I'm not going to anoint it as the best picture but i will say it is probably destined for a screenplay award probably destined for a directing award and i would be surprised if not at least a couple acting nominations as well specifically for katrina ball because she was so 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 good um, but yeah, again, Belfast directed by Kenneth Branagh, my favorite movie at Belfast. So I'm glad we got to this movie to, uh, to kick things off here for the TIFF 2021 films. All right. Next up on the docket, our second of four movies we're going to talk about in the kind of lengthy versions of the review, um, a movie that I really, really wanted to see if Belfast was the first one I wanted to see. This was the second one. I'm very excited to talk about this one because it is uh, near and dear to my heart. The location of this film, uh, aptly titled Scarborough. Boy, when it comes to the neighborhood of Scarborough, the suburb of Scarborough within the city of Toronto, I mean, I could talk about it forever, right? I'm from Scarborough. I think it's important to say that right off the bat. I am from Scarborough. So right off the... When I saw like when I saw this on the on the schedule at TIFF and it was made by an emerging Canadian filmmaker, I believe it won the Emerging Canadian Filmmaker Award at TIFF, and I think it was the runner-up for the People's Choice Award, which is a pretty cool thing to say, Right. I had to see this movie. I had to see it. I'm from Scarborough. I've spent most of my life in the suburbs. And I think I've spoken about this before, but my family wasn't exactly wealthy growing up. My parents are both immigrants from uh, Guyana. Okay. Uh, and I think if you go back far enough, like my, I think it's like my great, great grandparents are or were indentured servants um who came over on the boats from india right on both sides of my family on my dad's side and my mom's side um but uh you know there's no way to entirely confirm that because my uncle this is a a bit of a tangent but my uncle went to the i don't know what it's called it must be like the hall of records in india uh my mom's cousin to like kind of do some family history and it was like stopped in india because i mean like my dad's name is my dad's last name is ali and my mom's last name is a similarly common last name. I know the mother's maiden name thing is a is like security question. I'm not that stupid, but it's also a pretty common name. You can probably guess what it is. I'm not going to say it, though. <laughs> I'm smarter than that, I, or so I like to think. But anyways, my point is, um, 
members of both sides of the family, but my mom's side, went back and common name records are lost and not great record keeping, especially for indentured slaves, right? So I don't know. It just, it bums me out that you can't look back that far where then you have like other people, like unfortunately, mostly white people who let go and, uh, you know, they're like, oh yeah, my family crest goes back a thousand years. I can trace my family lineage back to who we think was King Arthur, right? It's like stuff like that bums me out. Um, and I think that's like the experience of a lot of immigrants. And so anyways, I know I, I got, I digress. I got off on a tangent there. My point being that my parents are immigrants and, um, they came here with nothing. They came here and my parent, my mom moved here as a teenage girl and my dad moved here as a slightly older teenage boy, um, with their families, uh, and they had nothing, right? I, I'm lucky in the sense that when I got a little older, my dad got a pretty well-paying job. He went to school. He he provided for the family. My mom became a teacher. She eventually rose all the way up to be a principal, which is amazing. I'm very proud of both my parents, and I love them. And um, they provided a, a, a great life for me and my siblings, right? There's, like, no way about it. I'm the oldest. So, like, my, my brother and sister, they were born after we moved out of, like, the... I don't want to say crappy, but like the lower income part of Scarborough. And I almost feel like they don't believe me when I tell them about the kinds of like the way our lives used to be. I'm eight years older than my brother and I'm 10 years older than my sister. I think I said that before on the pod. So there's a long winded way of saying Scarborough means a lot to me because we experienced so many different things there in my life. Like I remember my parents and I mean, again, we were privileged enough to own a car when I was younger um, we were privileged enough to have my grandmother living near us. And again, those are privileges that not everyone in Scarborough has, right? I guess my point is that watching this movie made me think a lot about all of the things I've been talking about for the last like three to four minutes, right? That That is why I think this movie resonated so much with me. It, at its core, this movie is about three children, right? I guess four children, but three are kind of the main characters. One character, one other kid is like the... Like a, related to he's like the brother of one of the three main characters so he's like in the movie a decent amount but the movie really is about these three children um one child is uh this white girl who is the daughter of a drug addict who is absent and i think it is implied a white supremacist as the father and that's one um so they're poor and they live in like like, you know, a rundown, abandoned apartment building. She is, doesn't eat for days at a time, stuff like that. And then you have a Filipino kid whose mother loves him so much, but the father is, again, you have to kind of work with the implications here, but it's implied he's like not responsible and is involved in some other stuff. So they leave him in the middle of the night and flee and go live on their own. And then third, um, these, this, this old, not older, but like the, the girl, this, this girl, indigenous girl who has a, a younger brother who I mentioned before, she is, uh, very intelligent and very friendly and outgoing, but her mother, her father is injured. He can't work. Her mother has to provide for the family and for their younger brother who has a very severe autism, right? So it's about the challenges these three families face and specifically like kind of through the lens of these children, right? So there's a lot of really interesting visual stuff, that's for sure. Like most of the movie is shot 
from a children's a child's perspective right like the like where like you know you watch a regular movie and like mostly with adults and the camera is like at the person's eye level and this movie is actually mostly shot from i mean eye level as well but like the eye level of like a like a 10 or 12 year old right which is like for most adults much lower down so like whenever that when you see an adult the camera is always looking up at the adult or like the adult is kneeling or 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 leaning down to get into the frame that's a really interesting visual perspective to make you feel like you are one of these kids which i think was very well done um generally speaking again the all three of the kid actors uh were were very good i would say um i really like the storyline for the filipino boy i think it's also implied again these are spoiler reviews right but i think it's also implied that he's gay or at least is like questioning or or exploring maybe a better way of looking at it is his sexuality and i mean again it's it's like things like painting his nails and liking dolls and stuff like that and again i don't think that necessarily means he's gay outright but i think it at least means it does like that character does challenge some gender norms let's put it that way right either way gay or not um he is the i think my favorite character um how the 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 indigenous girl and her and her autistic younger brother that's a little different too just because again the story is told from her perspective not anyone else's so you see how the mother struggles and so on um and the way they all kind of find each other is uh via i guess like a pre and post school like an after school and before school program run by this muslim teacher um and i get i guess she's not a teacher i suppose she might be a social worker and they just use the school like for resources wise anyways i i just i guess she is the like not the core but she is the way the narrative moves forward, right? Because she gives like food to the, the, the kids when they're struggling. She connects with the young girl whose parents are a white supremacist and a, and a drug addict. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's fascinating to see. And I guess maybe the reason that particular woman resonated with me so much is because she reminded me so much of my mom. Um, again, like my mom is much older than this woman. The woman, that woman couldn't have been more than like 32, right? And my mom obviously is in her, she's older, she's in her 60s. But I guess I saw that character and the level to which, again, she's not a teacher, but the level of which people go and care about their communities and, and try and help other people. I, I've seen that, not just from my mom, but from her coworkers on such a personal level. I like, it got, it really got to me. I gotta say, like I got, I, I almost cried a number of times. Um, I, which I never thought would be the case. Uh, it was a very affecting movie, but I, I will admit if you're not from Scarborough, not that this movie won't do anything for you, but I think there is obviously a, and that's why I wanted to talk about my connection to Scarborough and I grew up there and all that stuff. That's why I, maybe I'm the most unbiased when it comes to this subject material. Um, because I, I have friends who lived this, who are my friends to this day. Um, I, I have friends who've died, unfortunately, who I, who I knew for a really long time. It's just that kind of stuff can really affect you. And again, I'm not saying other people won't get the same, or maybe they won't get emotional feel or heft out of it, but certainly it is made for, I think a Canadian audience, a Toronto audience and a Scarborough audience. Right. Um, I will say one thing. The only nitpick I had is that I think this movie leans almost too far into being overly sad sometimes. Like, again, I know it was meant to highlight like personal tragedy and the kind of tragedy that goes unnoticed in most people's lives and how it affects communities when it does happen by 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 certainly by all means. But like the like I, again, spoiler alerts, but 
the uh, young girl whose father was the white supremacist and whose mother was a drug dealer, she dies in a house fire, like an apartment fire. And it's not a it's not clear how the fire starts. And I don't know if I missed the scene. I went I had to go back and watch it. it was, I watched this one digitally at TIFF. It's not clear how the fire starts. And then it's just like she's dead. And then they're like all sad about it. And I mean, I'm not saying they shouldn't be, but it's just like narrative wise, watching the actual movie with my eyes wise, I was confused. I was like, what? She's dead. What just happened? What am I watching right now? Right? Like that's what really confused me. So again, not pick it and not complaining. Maybe that's a bit of a nitpick, but for a movie that was so affecting, like considering that happens right at the very end, I was like, what the F what kind of movie am I watching here? Right. It was just confusing. That's the only complaint I would have. But again, kind of the first major film by these filmmakers, I'm not saying it's like a mistake. Maybe they didn't intentionally leave it ambiguous, but I personally would have appreciated. It's funny. I always talk about like wanting them to like tell and not show all the time. I would have appreciated some show and and not tell there perhaps I think is what I'm saying. Right. But either way, um, Scarborough, a very, very good movie. Again, probably more for people like me who grew up in Scarborough. But at the same time, I mean, like, you know what? I I watched it with my wife who uh, is not from Scarborough. She grew up in Richmond Hill. She did grow up in the Jane and Finch area. For those who are familiar, it's a, again, a lower income neighborhood on the, on the whole. Um, So she did not grow up in like this part of Scarborough, but she still saw many parallels. So I think if you grew up in or have experienced with witnessed whatever with lower income communities i think you will find something there it's just i think there it was cool to also just be like hey i've been there <laughs> like in, in, in terms of watching a film right um but again scarborough one of the year's best films and i i would encourage you to watch it if you do have some time all right let's get to the next film uh of the four films we're doing full reviews for on this episode of the podcast uh last night in soho directed by edgar wright his first foray into horror So let's see how that went. Here's the review for Last Night in Soho. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. As you're hearing right now, um, I think it's pretty pretty easy to say right off the bat that the... uh, Probably the strength of this movie is the soundtrack, right? And if you're familiar with any of Edgar Wright's movies... You know, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, A Baby Driver, certainly. I think his his propensity for picking the perfect song for any given scene is just like, it's just off the charts. It's off the charts, right? I mean, like, there's no way, there's no way you can, like, listen to any of his movies and think to yourself, ah, this guy sucks at picking music. He's really good at it, right? So that's, I think, the immediate highlight I noticed when I was watching this film um, Thomas and McKenzie is the uh, main character and uh, Anya Taylor joy is like the like ghost character, I guess like in, in case you're unfamiliar, the trailer was ambiguous as to how this works. And I guess when you watch the movie, you kind of just have to accept that the Thomas and McKenzie character is psychic. I think like it, they never overtly go out of their way to be like, this character has like the sixth sense or whatever, but I think it's implied like that is what she has, right? Because she essentially, uh, she's a young girl, inexperienced, from the countryside, English countryside, moves to the big city in London, the big bad city, and, uh, you know, doesn't jive with her roommates um, in the crowded girls' dormitory. So she goes and moves in. She finds, like, her own flat, 
end of our English term there, flat, <laughs> and uh, moves in with um, Diana Riggs' character, who I believe this was Diana Riggs' final film role before she passed away, unfortunately. Uh, I'm not going to say she's known for Game of Thrones, obviously, because Diana Riggs is really famous and is like Hollywood, not, not Hollywood royalty famous, but is like really famous over the course of a long period of time in Hollywood. But I think most people right now would remember her as like the the um the Tyrell like like the, the the matriarch of House Tyrell in the Game of Thrones movies but either way um she moves into the uh to a, a flat apartment owned by Diana Riggs character she's like the matronly landlady kind of cranky but warms up to Thomas and Mackenzie's character um and while she's there she starts to have psychic visions of a previous tenant played by Anya Taylor-Joy whereas like as at night her psychic visions are so strong she'd like live out the uh the the life of this other woman and look this movie visually really interesting right eloise is the name of thomas and mckenzie's character and sandy is the name of anya taylor joy's character and i think the first half of the movie is really strong in that the visuals are really cool like you know sandy will walk down a spiral staircase with a wall full of mirrors like like refracting mirrors and in the reflection you'll see thomas and mckenzie's eloise but you can't see the camera by any means i know we live in the world cgi but you see her character like refracting as if like a passing reflection of sandy sandy not noticing as she goes and meets the mysterious and later on the slimy uh, matt smith who was great in this role i should i should say um and I say this as someone who has not watched Doctor Who whatsoever, but either way, my point is that lots of really interesting visuals, and unfortunately, that's kind of like where this movie starts and ends, right? Because the second half of this movie, when you get the John character from the present day timeline, from the Eloise timeline, more involved, and he's played by Michael ajao and i hope i'm not mispronouncing his last name ajao ajao um but either way john's character and i think it's important to mention okay so john is into eloise and eloise becomes more outgoing as she kind of absorbs part of sandy's personality and then like she kind of like allows herself to be taken over by sandy in terms of like she looks she like ditches her friends in real life and goes to bed eagerly to dive back into the life of sandy and I guess what bothered me more than anything else is that once she starts to strike up a relationship with John Eloise in the modern timeline, you know, you kind of see where this is going, right? That like she, she basically allows the psychic visions to become too strong and Sandy gets into the world of drugs and sex and she kind of gets prostituted out and some bad things happen to Sandy eventually leading in you imagine her murder. And she like Eloise witnesses Sandy's murder while she's like basically about to bang John <laughs> in her bed in her like a rented bedroom, and she freaks out. And the uh, strict Miss Collins, Diana Riggs character, comes up to like break it all up. And I think you were supposed to watch this and think, oh no, no boys in the old lady's residence, and now she snuck a boy in, and now like the Diana Rigg unlocks the door and bashes her way in. And what did she see? She says a shocked crying Eloise and this young man who is like, it looked like she, he like tried to rape her basically. Right. Is, is what it looked like. And I almost feel like Edgar Wright didn't think about the optics of that man being black because it almost opens up a whole side conversation of 
not not like not just the idea of he said she said and what what the police believe a man over a woman and all that sort of thing those are valid conversations but the fact that he was black i think opens up an, a further conversation because i don't know i just I, I feel like it was poorly done and it almost felt like that scene existed not to showcase like oh boy this boy's getting in trouble but that this black boy is getting in trouble and i think that was like kind of unsettled me a little bit and i think that unsettling feeling in like a bad way not in a scary oh this is a horror movie anyway that kind of stayed with me right to the end of the movie i would say and i mean unfortunately the movie kind of turns into your typical slasher flick right through to the end and i don't know it's kind of a bummer i think right again flashy movie Really, really strong, really good first half. But once you like unravel the mystery a little more, it becomes pretty obvious what the twist is. I think everyone in the theater had guessed what it is. And I'm not going to even reveal it here. I think you'll guess it too, honestly. If you even are even familiar with movies, you'll probably guess it. Yeah, that's kind of my biggest problem with it, right? And then it kind of wraps up in a neat little bow. There's no little like teaser or anything like that. Not that there needs to be, but that's kind of where I fall on this movie. It was, it was fine. It was fine. I think... I think I'm I'm curious to see what the general audience perception of this movie is, but again, it's not Edgar Wright's best film. And you look at the more critically acclaimed, you know, movies of his, specifically Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and Baby Driver, and it just felt like a much stronger entry. And I felt like he kind of meanders a little bit and, and gets too much into jump scares and big sounds and knives because he's making a horror movie. If that makes sense, right? But either way, uh, Last Night in Soho definitely worth a watch by by all means. Uh, Thomas and Mackenzie and Anya Taylor Joy just are really good actresses. And um, I, I want to see them in more things. And Anya Taylor-Joy, just like as a human being, is so interesting to look at. I know that sounds weird. Like I'm, she's like, I'm not saying she's not hot by any means. And I'm not saying that's also the be all end all. But it's just she's an interesting looking person, right? Like she's not your conventional beauty, I guess. Like she's really attractive, but like in a very out there sort of way. Like a, she has like some kind of like ethereal quality about her. And I think that lend itself well to her being like the, the, uh, you know, like spirit character, I guess. Right. By the way, um, it is a, it is a very good movie. Some interesting performances falls short in the end on the whole, but very visually interesting. And some, like I mentioned at the top, great music. All right. The last movie on the schedule for the movies, we're going to do full reviews of. So after this, we'll still do just in case we forgot uh, a quick hitting three reviews for the other movies. I saw Tiff. They were not that they weren't as important, but it's just like, I don't think I liked them as, or they weren't as interesting maybe as these other four films. So we did Belfast Scarborough last night in Soho. Let's wrap things up with the humans, which is, I believe an adaptation of a Broadway play. So let's get into the review for the humans. Why does it seem so inviting? I just want to say this off the top. Whenever you have a movie adapted from a play, I think there is like a natural inclination to say, ah, well, just as much a character as any of the actual human characters is the set. The set design is a character all on its own. It lives, it breathes. The set is so great. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I, I, I'm sure I've said that at some point. The city is as much a character as any of the other characters. You know what I mean? Like, I think we've all been guilty of that. And I, I for sure have been guilty of that. Having said that, I know you can hear the butt coming, right? 
Because this is based on a play, and I think it's important to say that Stephen Karam, 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 I could be wrong. Stephen, let's say Karam, um, directed this movie, his feature film debut. As far as I can tell, Karam also directed the Broadway adapt, like the Broadway play. He directed the Broadway version of this, and his first movie was to adapt his own play into a movie. Okay, so I think that, first of all, I think lends its own authenticity to this because it's not like some other guy adapting this. It's this, it's this guy adapting a thing he's already intimately familiar with. And uh, this movie stars Richard Jenkins, Jane Hootieshell, Beanie Feldstein, Amy Schumer, Stephen Yoon, and uh, June Squibb. Those are the main characters. And because this is an ad- adaptation of a play, um, there's a lot of standing around, sitting around and talking. And I got to say it, the house they live in is very much an integral part of why the characters do what they do and say what they do. The whole the whole premise of this movie is that um, Bridget and Richard, Beanie Feldstein, pardon me, and Stephen Yoon are uh, boyfriend and girlfriend. They've been dating for a decent amount of time now. They live in a ground-level apartment in New York City, um, where in certainly in Manhattan, and I think we learn it's within the blast radius of uh, 9-11 is what we learned uh, much like kind of via a little tidbit of dialogue from Richard Jenkins's character, who is uh, who is uh, Bridget's father, right? So Richard Jenkins is the dad. Jane Hootieshell is the mother. Jane Hootieshell also reprising her role as the mother character from the actual play. All the other actors are just are taking these roles on for the first time. Amy Schumer as Bridget's older sister and June Squibb as Momo, um, their grandmother, Richard Jenkins's uh, mother. All right, so. Basically, it's Thanksgiving, and their entire family have come to visit uh, Stephen Yoon and, and Beanie Feldstein at their two-story apartment, ground level, and then a basement level in um, Manhattan. Okay, so and, and I guess, like you might, might imagine, it's like it, it, I think that the, the thing that makes this so authentic, I think, is that it feels very much like things you would hear in a real family dinner, right? Like petty squabbles, petty disagreements. You know, you say something that you're, you're, you 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 don't want your sister to know about, or your father to know about, or your mother to know about. They have different political views than you. They disagree with you at the dinner table. You get into an argument. People are upset, and then the next course comes out, and you all forget it. Right? In that sense, the humans is so relatable because I'm sure we've all experienced that. With, not with, I mean, like our our dads and moms and brothers and sisters and grandparents and so on, but like with our significant others' families or your uncles or aunts or whatever, right? I think we've all, to a degree, experienced that in some way, shape, or form. And I think the humans does a really good job at that. At every turn, and I mentioned the house already, at every turn, the father is looking at the pipes in the walls and he sees water stains and like the foam to prevent leaks. And you hear the groans of the house as like it contracts and people, the thumping of the neighbors above on the second floor, you the light bulbs are constantly going out so they're constantly being left in the in the darkness in the basement part of the house and it's just like a, it's a little run down even though it's a big place in the middle of in the middle of New York but at the same time i think the father and mother are kind of like oh i didn't live in here right and and i don't know it's just great performances all around really like beanie feldstein really like richard jenkins jane hootieshell hard to argue this woman is not the heart of the story because she's dealing with a lot of things um, both, you know, like uh, infidelity from her husband and kind of slights on her figure from her husband as well. And 
how her daughters perceive her. You know, you got Amy Schumer, the, the, the former high-powered attorney who is now struggling in her personal life, and it affects her physically as well. Um, Stephen Yoon, who is the well, well-off boyfriend, who is just observing all of this from afar while, while sometimes snipes are made from their lower middle-class family at his, like, you know, his trust fund status, that kind of stuff. You have the grandmother who is suffering from dementia. Again, a lot of reality going on here, and I think that's the strength of a lot of the dialogue. Um, and, I mean, there's one, there was one piece of dialogue that particularly stuck out to me, which was when Richard Jenkins says, why does it cost so much to just live, right? And I think it just goes to show it, it does tackle the, the dichotomy of, like, race and class in America and not just in America but everywhere, certainly, right? I don't know. I just... I really like the the play and I really like the discussions they have and like the way the way things are framed and certain characters are looking at each other and hoping that other characters don't see. It's all very well done. I think Stephen Cram did a f- fantastic job for his first ever movie. My goodness, fa- fantastic stuff. I just want to tackle the ending real quick because again, so June Squibb is uh the uh, the mother of Richard Jenkins's character, right? The father. And so she has dementia. Okay, at the end of the movie, the lights go out for a final time, like the light bulbs, like the dangling light bulbs are constantly getting new light bulbs from their box on the upper floor or whatever. So whatever, constantly the lights going out. And uh, at the end of the movie, they all are leaving. They're waiting for their Uber or whatever on the street outside. And the father, Richard Jenkins, goes down the stairs into the basement to get the light bulb. And he had just revealed his infidelity to his daughters and they feel weird about it. So the kind of party has been pooped, right? It's, it's, uh, it's over now. Everyone's leaving. So you get a solo scene with Richard Jenkins in the pitch black and he's fumbling around and it's really well done. It's like a wide shot of Richard Jenkins in the basement. And all you can see is his face with the, like the lantern he found, like the electric lantern he found. And just like, if you're looking at a giant screen, his face is like in the bottom right-hand corner, and it's just pitch black around him. And it's scary. Like, I gotta say, it's a scary movie. Like, the dread of this movie from the house seeps into every scene, and it almost feels like something more sinister is, like, watching them or is present. And I don't know if it's just, like, the banality of being in a family that has these old rehashed arguments is what that monster is. But, like, it is so fascinating, especially with the end, where you almost feel like some kind of, like, Lovecraftian horror is going to jump out of the dark and eat the father alive and then eat you, the viewer, right? It's just, I got to say, it was very well done. And I loved it because at the end of the movie, uh, he's, like, they're all like, Dad, all right, Dad, come on, Dad. And he's, like, looking, he's, like, walking through the, the, um, the, uh, the darkened hallways. And he, so there's, I guess there are like their doors on the each floor, a door to the hallway in the basement level and the door to the hallway on the main level on the upper level, which is the ground floor level. Right. And he's on the basement level. He opens the door to the prop and open and he see, and he start and he has the holds the lantern up too. And then he sees like the shadows on the pipes that he's been looking at the water stains that he's been watching all movie start to move and swirl and come into shapes. And then he just looks at it and he just starts to scream <laughs> and I'm watching this and I'm like, am I also going crazy? Am I actually watching this or is this not, is this not happening here? Right? Like what's going on here? Um, It is, it was fascinating to watch. I feel like, again, you can read into it a number of different ways. Is he just suffering from dementia? Like his mother is. And that was what he really wanted to tell his daughters. And he couldn't bring to, couldn't bear to tell them that he like has dementia. Was he just seeing things because it was a stressful night? What, like, you know what I mean? Like, 
it, what was that supposed to represent? I think you can read it a number of ways, but I feel like the the most easy way to read it is simply that he was just like he is he has dementia himself and that's the way of visualizing it but boy that was scary like it was it was legitimately scary more than any jump scare possibly could because you're like boy that's all too real and then he sits down panting and then they're like yeah come on let's go and then he walks out the door slowly closes pitch black roll credits right so i gotta say like with most adaptations of plays to movies, a lot of standing around and talking, moving to another room, talking, sitting down and talking, but still some interestingly framed shots and some very fascinating discussions on class, on race, on everything that families talk about, right? So again, I really like The Humans, probably like my third favorite movie behind Belfast and Scarborough, like in that order. But again, I, I would encourage you to see it. Um, I believe it was an A24 movie. Not that that really matters, but I, I think it'll be coming out in, in short order. So I encourage you to watch it if you can. All right, let's get to the last kind of mishmash of reviews here. France, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne and The Guilty. France about uh, Lea Seydoux's character, uh, France, right? A movie, it's a, it's a foreign film, takes place in France, directed by a French director, starring French actors, right? So the movie is obviously uh, in French. So uh, it, I say France because I'm like Canadian, but like like they say in the movie, it's it's not named for the, the country, it's, which I would imagine is also pronounced France, but it's named for this character, France, who is uh, 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 the most high-powered journalist in the entire country. And I'll just say this, it was a fine, it was a passable movie, probably like 45 minutes too long, a bit melodramatic. Uh, Lea Seydoux cries a lot. Like, I'm saying a lot, okay? I dare say you have never in any movie seen any actor cry as much as Lea Seydoux cries in this movie. Honest to God. Um, that's not to say it's bad. It's just, like, a lot of crying. Um, I want to say real quick, it's kind of like about how she's estranged from her husband and she deals with the pressures of being, like, a beautiful journalist who's essentially a celebrity in this country and there's a scene, I don't, this is a spoiler for sure, but I don't think very many people are going to see this movie. But either way, if you don't want to be spoiled, tune away, skip ahead. But here's a spoiler for you. Her husband and young son die, okay? They die in this movie. I got to say, that is the most comical death scene I have maybe ever seen in any movie. They're like driving on some like, on some, you know, winding roads in the France, like the, the like the hills of France, not even in Paris where the most of the movie takes place, but like in the countryside in Europe somewhere. And then like, they're doing the, the father is driving, the son is in the driver in the passenger seat in the front, and the front is not there. She's like doing whatever her job or whatever. And for some reason, unexplained in this film, the father loses control of their like bends. And as they're going around a corner, and then like the car starts to swerve back and forth, he loses control. An oncoming truck is in the other lane, he hits the truck. The car rolls over, rolls down a hill, smashes into the truck. The truck smashes the car up against like the cliffside. The truck, now out of control itself, throw like, pushes the car through the divider off the edge of the cliff. The car then falls down the cliff, like rolls over and over and over and over and over down to the bottom of the cliff where it then explodes. And then like rocks fall on it. And I'm like, holy shit, they really wanted you to think this guy is dead, right? Like, my God. And then, like, the next scene is her crying at their funeral, and then they just got to move on. I don't know. This movie was weird. Uh, I like Leah Sadie and basically everything I've ever seen her in. Um, spoiler alert, she is in the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, just like she was Inspector. She reprises her role as Dr. Madeline Swan. 
less crying in that one, although she still cries in James Bond. Um, I mean, that was in the trailer. You're not shocked, right? But boy, like, what a weird movie. It was a weird film. I gotta say, like, I I didn't love it. I didn't hate it by any means. It was just strange, right? Anyways, that's my bite-sized review of France. Um, the Electrical Life of Louis Wayne stars Benedict Cumberbatch and is about... Uh, the real life character of Lewis Wayne, it's a biopic and Lewis Wayne in real life is the guy who apparently popularized cats and, and like cats being domesticated animals, I guess pets. And I mean, I was interested in this movie because I have a pet cat, um, a family cat and uh, Stringer is his name. He's the best cat in the whole world. I just want to say right off the bat here. <laughs> um, but uh, Lewis Wayne, I guess I, it's, I think it's implied he's like a little autistic, I think, and that it was like just undiagnosed because this movie takes place in like the 1800s. And it was all about how he popularized cat pictures to the point that people owned cats as pets after this, whereas before they were just viewed as like mousers and not like pests, but they were just kind of animals that existed, right? And uh, the unfortunate thing was that as the only man in a family full of women, he was entrusted with providing for them, but because he's like a bit daft, as they say in the movie, which again, as I think is a polite way of saying he was autistic, he did not trademark or copyright any of his work, and thus they never saw a penny, and he died a pauper. And, again, a very sad movie. It's like, it's definitely a good performance from Benedict Cumberbatch. Not his best performance by any means, but, I mean, he's the only real performance of note, I would say. Again, sad movie, but, again, I think, I, I almost feel like it was, like, the movie wanted you to think it was more uplifting than it actually was, and then by the end of it, you're kind of like, huh. This is sad. This is a sad movie. This guy dies alone. Like his wife dies when like they only be married for like six months or something. And then she dies. It's I don't know. It's kind of weird. Uh, I think Claire Foy, by the way, plays his wife and she's in it for like 20 minutes and then dies and is not in it again. So, again, she has a good performance, too, as she always gives going back to the crown and so on on TV on Netflix. But boy, the. Uh, overall yeah i don't know man i i didn't love this movie i was kind of checking my phone throughout i watched this one digitally i don't know I, better biopics exist let's put it that way and i uh, will wrap up here with the guilty which directed by antoine fuqua and uh, starring jake gyllenhaal uh of course antoine fuqua directed you know training day the equalizer uh when it comes to the guilty, I'm like 98% sure this movie was a pandemic project because most of it takes place in like two rooms. It's about Jake Gyllenhaal, who is a cop who has a troubled past. Um, I think it's, I think you eventually learn at the end that he kills a kid uh, and is like being put on like the, you know, he, he answers like the 911 calls and is testy. He talks back to people. He's kind of an asshole. And then he meets someone who I think is being kidnapped and calls for his help. There is a bit of a twist. I think this is a remake, actually. I've never seen the original. But either way, the entire movie takes place in, like, one or two rooms. So if you don't like Jake Gyllenhaal, you will not like this movie because it is a lot of him. He is in literally every shot. And I, like, for a pandemic movie, quote-unquote, it's not bad. It's not the worst movie, honestly. But it's just, it gets a little tiring after a while. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it needed to be as long as it was and, the twist gets dragged out via conversations. Again, it is gripping for the first like half. And then by the end, you're kind of like, ah, I think I just want to get this over with. Right. But I will say this, and I've said this before about Jake Gyllenhaal. He is never the worst thing about a movie. Never, ever, 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 probably never will be. And in fact, he is really good in this movie. So I'm not expecting any accolades here for him, but he is compelling as like the, 
the flawed police officer who knows he did something wrong but won't admit it, let's say. Okay, so I I did like it because of Jake Gyllenhaal. I didn't like it because of the cop stuff, and I don't know. I, I understand what, what Anton Fuqua was trying to do, but I just feel like with him, too, like you— he is so good at directing action scenes and like this is a movie of Jake Chanel just talking on the phone essentially right so there is no action and again I'm not saying it wasn't in like shooty shooty fight fight not enough of that I'm not saying I was bored but it's just I think Antoine Fuqua's talents lie more in the training day uh, which I know it's not an action movie necessarily but in those kinds of movies instead of these just really introspective movies let's put it that way right so anyways um, okay movie passable movie I believe it's a Netflix film so I'm sure it'll be available soon enough if it's not already available but again you know you can see why I didn't want to devote a full review to this it's just like there's not a lot of substance there even if Jake Gyllenhaal uh, is really good all right that does it for uh, this episode of reviews. I can't believe we squeezed in seven movies into this. I hope it's not too long for you. Um, again, we covered uh, four movies in like the full sense, Belfast, Scarborough, Last Night in Soho, The Humans, and then the last three, France, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, and The Guilty. Uh, in the next episode, I'm going to shift my focus back to, again, commercial releases, wide releases, let's say. Um, I saw Free Guy, finally. I saw that one on Disney+. Plus months after it came out that'll be a quicker review we'll be we'll be we'll do a quick review of free guy like in the intro of the next episode but i I mainly want to talk about dune um which is of course is the adaptation of frank herbert's like very dense very famous uh sci-fi epic which predates star wars i I mean star wars cribs a lot from another a lot of other uh a lot of other inspirations but boy dune is certainly one of them and the the denis villeneuve movie is is good it's a very good film so i'm excited to talk about dune with you all um, I finally got around to seeing Venom, Let There Be Carnage. So we'll talk some Venom. And uh, No Time to Die and Eternals are on the docket as well. There's some The latest entry into James Bond and the latest entry into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Much like Shang-Chi was on the last episode, on the next episode we'll get The Eternals. But uh, that's all coming up next on the next episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. I'm sure I'll see the French dispatch soon enough. And there are a couple other movies on the horizon that I will see before the end of, uh, of 2021 that we'll talk about on the podcast as well. But I, I do appreciate you all bearing with me. I know, I know this is an episode that's been a long time coming. So I, again, I really appreciate it. Really busy things really up in the air at work, right? Like a lot of people were let go. Things change. Um, some people I was close with got are no longer working here. Right. So we're all kind of adjusting to the new schedule and I am as well. And then I'm also married as of, as of uh, a couple months ago, right? Three months at the end of November. So I, I can't exactly be leaving my wife for hours at a time to go like record a podcast after I'm done work. She says I can record at home, but I feel bad because she works like insane hours. So I'm just, I don't want to disturb her. So I got to do it at work, which is where I am right now. Right. So, uh, but either way, I, like I said, I appreciate you guys bearing with me. Um, always enjoy chatting movies with you. It's a lot of fun, honestly. It's a hobby for me. Um, this podcast isn't going to like uh, get me on, uh, on on the news or anything like that. But I, I do enjoy it, because, and I hope you guys enjoy just a little bit of it as well. So I hope you're all staying safe. I hope you're all doing well. Thank you so much for listening to the latest episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. And as always, stay safe. And of course, have a great night.